Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. It has been a long time since we have talked in depth about the United Kingdom itself on the podcast. The only exception was a brief return for our discussion of men's clothing in the 1840s. We'd been away talking about the settler empire. We last looked in on Queen Victoria herself all the way back in August 2020 in episode 31 when she and Prince Albert got married. Don't worry, I will also be covering women's clothing in the 1840s in a mini-sode fairly soon, but I want to bring us back to the mainland for a bit. We've got a huge amount to get through, because 1840 was an incredibly busy decade. It was also a very unpleasant one for many, many people. Across Europe, it was known as the Hungry Forties, and the Irish Famine is an event etched into history, culture, and folk memory. There were some crucial inventions and the domestic impact of key wars, especially those in India and China. For today, though, we are going to be having a bit of a look at Queen Victoria's first couple of years in the 1840s, as they were actually incredibly important to her. They would shape her marriage and set Albert on the path to being someone who can be called a king in all but name, and one of the greatest statesmen in British history. These years would also form the basis of the modern political settlement of the UK constitution up to the mid-20th century. Before we get started, I've had an email from Dave in Chicago, which I thought was really interesting, so I'm going to read it to you. Quote, I am a collector and reader of the literature for boys of the late Victorian period. Lately, the Captain magazine, one of the better written publications in the genre. I have been struck several times by references in stories and personal histories to poor boys going to London or other cities at 15 or younger to take office jobs or just make their way in the world. I had wondered how on earth they survived. I can't imagine how they found a place to stay. So I nosed around and found quite a bit about the common lodging houses. And it really was an astonishing rock to turn over. They changed a great deal over the course of the 19th century. But that whole world is fascinating and a real slice of the age start to finish. I'm sure you know more about that world than I do. But if you could sometime do an episode about common lodging houses, I would really appreciate it. And I think others might too. I know you don't lack material or ideas. I'm just putting in a plug for this one. End quote. So the quick answer is yes, we will cover them. The slightly longer answer is absolutely, and probably soon, because they are really important, and will come up in relation to a lot of things, including during the Irish famine. They were also known as Doss Houses, and my grandmother, who was brought up by an arch-Victorian lady of formidable bearing and repute, was fond of saying, pick that up, Christopher, this is not a Doss House. They would have been extremely familiar to the Victorian city dweller that any man who lived in one would have noted sharply that he was not so poor and idle that he'd ended up in the workhouse or taking charity. He paid for his bed, often 4p a night, even 
the famous novelist Jack London wrote about them. I've also had a listener review from Alan in Preston, Australia, five stars. Quote, I rarely review podcasts, but I just had to take a moment to do so whilst listening to the 2017 Christmas special episode of Age of Victoria. This episode is a nearly hour-long dive into Dickens' A Christmas Carol that is far more interesting than I expected it to be. It's a relatively early episode in the life of the podcast, but the host is clearly hitting his stride already, as this is simply a fantastic and gripping exploration of the story and the world its authors live in. Truly wonderful. End quote. Thank you, Alan. And yes, that Christmas Carol episode is a long-standing favourite with listeners. Also, just to note, it is getting increasingly difficult to release the monthly episode bang on the first of each month, especially a lot of my work at work requires key finance tasks just on the first of the month. So I'm going to be switching to a goal of releasing each episode by the first to the fifth of each month, probably around the fourth. Not a huge change and my monthly commitment remains untouched. Now, a brief recap. Albert was Victoria's first cousin. He was married to her for political reasons, but it really was a love match. He also matched Victoria's large sexual appetites and was rumoured to have an extremely large penis, which was easily visible when he wore white breeches, especially if it rained. Victoria noted several times in her diary how much she enjoyed seeing him in his tight white breeches in the rain. Inevitably, Victoria was soon pregnant. I'll do an episode on Victorian sex at some point next year, but in brief, the couple had no access to reliable contraception and Victoria was understandably terrified about childbirth. With no reliable pain control, even a successful birth was agony. Things often went wrong, infection was an ever-present danger, and a C-section was a death sentence for the mother. Albert, in the early marriage, was already looking for ways to keep himself busy. He was trying to educate Victoria to a proper Germanic musical taste, and along the way, try and batter some culture into the perennially tasteless British aristocracy. The aristocracy themselves were usually inclined to forms of Italian opera when they listened to music, with lots of Handel thrown in. The days of exciting Victorian parlour music were in the future. Albert inclined to chorals and wanted more Bach, Mendelssohn and, if he could humanly manage it, perhaps get the aristocracy to do something besides fox hunting, gambling and whoring. He was fuming that musical tastes in the English aristocracy seemed not to have changed in 75 years, were almost entirely influenced by the Italians and were a very limited repertoire. The small middle class was heavily dominated by the Viennese classics. They were all utterly, maddeningly uninterested in Mozart, Beethoven, Liszt or Chopin, despite having opportunities for live performances. Remember, this was not classical music at the time. It was music, not well known and worn with age like today. It was the first time people heard some of the greatest pieces in the history of civilization. The composers were like modern pop or rock stars and far from the stuffy, idealized image presented today. 
Beethoven, for instance, was notorious for being incredibly dirty. He sometimes just poured water over his head instead of getting undressed to wash, was known to wear the same clothes for weeks, and he was utterly, bluntly rude. Some of his work didn't actually surface until later in the Victorian era. Much like people discovering the old blues artists of the 1940s in the blues revival of the 1960s, Beethoven's Fur Elise was dashed off as a short piece and only came to attention in the 1850s after his death. Today, nearly everyone on earth knows the tune. Yes, that's the one. It was found in the personal diary of Teresa Mathati in 1851 and first published in 1867 once people had finally worked out Beethoven's habitually terrible handwriting. It was only called Bagatelle, which is the musical term for short piece. It had the words Fair Elise at the top, but the modern suspicion is that it was Teresa and just passed through the ringer of at least two people with dreadful handwriting. Some stories seem to think that he'd written it for her to encourage her very average piano playing as his student by giving her something that sounded difficult to play but which was in fact very easy. She had rebuffed him romantically halfway through writing and got engaged to someone else which is why the piece has an uncharacteristically difficult run about 1 minute 53 seconds in, which would suddenly confound and embarrass an average piano player. Besides music, Albert had a lot of ambitions and big plans for social and political reforms. This was difficult since Victoria expected her sexy prince to stand behind her like a good prince consort with his mouth shut. If you recall her childhood, she had 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 enough overbearing people in her life. She was a newly married queen and had the devoted Lord M, plus a passionate husband. Tension in this role. Albert didn't have the kind of mind or personality that was willing to just stand around looking good, saying hello to visiting dignitaries, living on royal incomes and wasting money on food, clothes and hunting, then coming whenever Victoria was feeling frisky. He was simply not suited to be a trophy husband. Queen Victoria had daily meetings with Lord M to talk politics and would sometimes allow Albert what she considered a special treat. He could stand behind her while she signed official documents, hold the blotting paper and sometimes dab off the wet ink. He was frustrated, bored, lonely and feeling like an isolated foreigner and he had barely been married for a few months. On top of this, he knew that the ageing Lord Melborough wouldn't be in government much longer, and it was likely the Tories would take over, the same Tories that Victoria loathed and had already actively worked to keep out of government. Albert was convinced it was essential for the UK to transition to a modern constitutional monarchy where Crown 
would be a non-partisan institution rather than active director. This would protect it from being associated with unpopular administrations, increase its stability, make politicians more amenable to the institution, since they knew that being from a difficult political faction wouldn't preclude them with working from the monarchy when governments changed, and it would increase the somewhat dubious legitimacy of the institution itself. That meant no more stopping elected governments because Queen V didn't like them. Crown neutrality was Albert's domestic vision, and he saw it as the first step in his more important project, the unification of Germany and the creation of a diplomatic Germanic bloc of Germany, Britain, Belgium, Denmark, and Switzerland. This would counterbalance any French or Russian militarism in his eyes and linked to the natural symbiosis between Germanic and British culture. After all, the two cultures were both historically extremely interlinked. The royal family in England was essentially German. The geography, art, literature, philosophy, food, and even customs were so similar. Remember, Germany only seems antagonistic to Britain because we have the perception of two of the largest world wars in history. But really, Britain and Germany should be closer allies than Britain and the United States. To any Victorian statesman, Albert would have sounded foreign and perhaps rather utopian. None of them would have said, well, yes, but we hate the Germans on principle. With a bit more historical luck and a lot less Bismarck, then we would have easily avoided World War I. Since World War II was a continuation of World War I in so many ways, you can see why Albert's vision for cultural and political unity was an aching might have been. That's some big dreams and responsibilities, especially as the royal couple, only 21 years old and in the first year of their marriage, Victoria had confided her concerns about Albert's obvious frustrations with Lord M. He in turn relayed a more diplomatic summary to Albert's personal secretary, George Anson. Quote, My chief impression is that the chief obstacle in Her Majesty's mind is the fear of a difference of opinion, and she thinks that domestic harmony is more likely to follow from avoiding subjects likely to create difficulties. End quote. Luckily, not only had Anson been Lord Melbourne's private secretary before he became Prince Albert's, but he was also intelligent and diplomatic. But everyone knew no marriage can avoid difficult subjects forever. Some big decisions were made. It was agreed Albert would be Prince Regent if Victoria died whilst any children were under 18, rather than a Regency Council. He was soon recognised as an intellectual and elected to the Royal Society, granted the rank of Colonel Commandant of the 11th Hussars, and was made a Privy Chancellor. Still, it wasn't easy to work out Prince Albert's role, as Victoria herself would later note, quote, It is a strange omission in our constitution that while the wife of the king has the highest rank and dignity in the realm, after her husband assigned to her by law, the husband of a queen regnant, is entirely ignored by the law. This is more extraordinary, as a husband has in this country 
such particular rights and such great power over his wife, and, as the queen is married, just as any other woman is, and swears to obey her lord and master, as such, while by law he has no rank or defined position. This is a strange anomaly. End quote. Victoria's pregnancy and the increasing restrictions it placed on her meant she had to turn to Albert to pick up the slack. The role of monarch was different from prime minister, and there were things Lord Melbourne simply couldn't do for her, as he didn't have the legal powers, but the prince consort could. Lord M encouraged Victoria to give Albert access to her foreign dispatches, which would help in diplomatic matters. The aristocracy still mostly regarded him as a strangely dressed, uptight foreigner who refused to drink, swear and haul with them. But the more sensible or politically aware members of the ruling class knew they had a huge asset. Albert's popularity increased when he showed cool courage during an assassination attempt on the pregnant Victoria, shielding her with his body when the shots went off. Prince Albert was already indulging his own private war on corruption in the royal finances. He was driven to rage by the waste, corruption, inefficiency, and worst of all to his orderly mind, badly designed systems. To be corrupt was bad, but to design a system that was illogical was heresy of the worst kind. This naturally caused conflict with the royal staff, who said they couldn't possibly use things like candles more than once, for example. What was the point of royalty if the Queen couldn't have a fresh expensive candle each time? And then it would be a crime to throw them away. So it was better if the servants just took them home and ordered new ones. Nor was Albert pleased with what he found when he started his daily rides. Unlike a lot of the rich, he took himself off to further parts of London and was horrified by the poverty in what was supposed to be an imperial capital of one of the richest nations on earth. He listened to reports about poverty, political unrest, uprisings, revolts in Canada, unrest in the West Indies, and the disasters in Afghanistan, together with the war in China, and he fumed bitterly about his lack of official power to fix things and the rapid decline in the Crown's power and prestige after the crisis of the bedchamber. Not that it had been particularly high before. He was further vexed by the obstinance of Baroness Lazen. She refused to accept that after Victoria's marriage, her relationship with the Queen had to change. She wanted to keep control of the Privy Purse, which frustrated Albert's war on corruption and waste in the royal finances, and she tried to keep him out of the loop on various matters. As part of the process of saving the sinking ship that was the UK political system, Prince Albert was determined to step up his involvement, reposition the crown to a more non-partisan institution, and present himself as a humane, honest broker. He had neither the political talent nor moral flexibility to cope with politicians like Disraeli, Gladstone, Palmerston on their ground, nor would he have wanted to. Instead, he would force people to look to the crown as moral and political exemplars. 
one of the first steps was becoming president of the Society for the Extinction of the Slave Trade and the Civilization of Africa. He was delighted as he loathed slavery with a passion and this would help cement the official position of the crown as now firmly anti-slavery. He had to give his first public speech in English to a crowd of over 5,000 people. He was nervous over breakfast, but Victoria supported him. It was a stirring success, with Elbert denouncing slavery as, quote, a stain upon civilised Europe, end quote. The audience included future Prime Ministers Peel and Israeli, plus visiting American abolitionists. It is interesting to note that British anti-slavery activity would in turn require new diplomatic and military arrangements, ones that were often antagonistic to the slave-based economies on the West Africa coast, where native kingdoms like Dahomey made fortunes trading slaves from the interior to the Europeans, but it would also lead to difficulties with the USA and the Royal Navy slave hunting patrols. There were also the sexual politics at work. Societies throughout history have expected people to conform to certain roles and behave in certain ways in accordance with those roles. It is, though, far more complicated than a simple gender role breakdown. A male priest in ancient Egypt was expected to behave in a way that a Roman centurion from the 1st century CE would have found rather effeminate. Both would be male and conforming to the male roles in their society, but those roles behave differently despite the supposed common gender identity. When the Victorians talked about a woman's nature or a woman's role, it was usually as an idealised version and then made to accommodate the individual's social status. For example, a young unmarried bishop's daughter would have been expected to be chaste, polite, feminine and cultured. She would not be expected to spend time alone with strange men in case of impropriety and most people would have said her role was therefore to become a married woman and mother. An unmarried 60-year-old charwoman working on the streets and living in the slums would not be expected to be polite or cultured and few respectable people, if they bothered to notice her, would have expected her to conform to idealised femininity. Artist, critic and all-round weirdo John Ruskin certainly spoke for many Victorians when he said, quote, The woman's power is for rule, not battle, and her intellect is not for invention or creation, but for sweet ordering, arrangement and decision. Her great function is praise. She enters into no contest, but infallibly judges the crown of contest. By her office and place, she is protected from all danger and temptation. She must be enduringly, incorruptibly good, instinctively, infallibly wise. Wise not for self-development, but for self-renunciation. Wise not that she may set herself above her husband that she may never fall from his side, end quote. Others, and not just women's rights campaigners, but many progressive thinkers of the time, would have strongly disagreed with him. It is worth remembering 
that the image of the Victorians as an era only regressive for women's roles in society both overstates the previous freedoms women had in society and often ignores the large number of almost unprecedented new freedoms and rights women gained. Female artists and writers became increasingly accepted. Women gained increased property rights, political power and memberships of civic institutions. They began to enter the professions and even world travelling adventurers like Nellie Bly were not unknown. In the growing imperial sphere, white women wielded immense power directly over native people. Whilst in the United States, women were heavily involved in both abolitionism and slavery. For instance, Mary LaLouie of New Orleans owned multiple slaves and indulged her passions for torture and murder on them. Historian Professor Stephanie Rogers has estimated that as many as 40% of slave owners were white women in the South. Besides, whilst important, race and gender weren't the main prism through which social politics were viewed. As David Carradine said in his magnificent book, Orientalism, quote, far from seeing themselves as atomized individuals with no rooted sense of identity or as collective classes coming into being and struggling with each other, or as equal citizens whose modernity engendered an unrivaled sense of progressive superiority, Britons generally conceived of themselves as belonging to an unequal society characterised by a seamless web of layered gradations, which were hallowed by time and precedent, which were sanctioned by tradition and religion, and which extended in a great chain from the monarch at the top to the humblest subject at the bottom. End quote. There was no question in people's minds that Victoria as Queen was entitled to all the power and deference due to the sovereign. It underscores how people viewed her when you remember that Sir Robert Peel struggled not because he couldn't deal with the concept of a woman being more powerful than him, but because he felt the lack of acceptance and confidence in him from Victoria was a sign of his failure to be adequate to his role and a reflection of his own middle-class background. He is said to have cried at one point when the Queen let it be known that she felt he had handled a matter well, as it signified the acceptance of his social superior. Victoria was in quite a bind. She wanted to be the Queen, but the inherent problem with the patriarchal society she lived in was the Queen Regnant was in opposition to the idealised version of the wife and upper-class woman. But it was never a question that her subjects would not see her as entitled to command them within the constitutional limits or think her inferior to them because of her gender. She did not have the absolutist powers of her role model, Queen Elizabeth. Anyway, Victorian Britain was far more complicated than Elizabethan England. Still, Victoria needed the political power to match her upbringing and personality without being forced to give up her view of what it meant to be a woman. That included her views about the submission of a woman to a husband. The new watchword of the era was to be respectability. 
roles and submission to them were to be essential, whether they were gender roles, social roles, religious roles or employment. But as I've said, there was huge variety in women's roles and Victoria had a lot of freedom to shape her own too. She was not a passive victim of circumstances, nor was she constrained to a ceremonial role like a Chinese or Japanese emperor of some periods. Much of her struggle over being the idealised perfect middle-class wife was due to her own conservatism and her romantic fantasies. Ultimately, the question was not, could a woman and queen rule, but rather, what was the proper role of a queen in the British system and how should she behave when her husband was not the king? What was becoming clear was that the model of monarchy that Britain needed required more than just Victoria's undeniable determination and her hard work. The challenge was to transition from the old, chaotic and unpopular Georgian monarchy with its own ministries in Parliament to a system where the Crown stood above party politics and set a serious tone for modern government in the industrial age. There were already world-changing political ramifications to Queen Victoria's early reign. Amongst her early roles, she became patron of the Royal Asiatic Society, which in turn led to patronage of various Christian bishoprics in India, notably the seas of Calcutta, Bombay and Colombo. With the Duke of Wellington becoming commander-in-chief and due to his close friendship with Victoria and Albert, the royal couple became more interested in Indian and other Eastern affairs. The Duke of Wellington was close friends with the Tory ultra Lord Ellenborough, who would very shortly become Governor-General of India in 1842, since Ellenborough had very set views on what was needed to expand British rule and counter Russian expansion, his access to the young royal couple crucial. He would later bypass many of the normal reporting structures and write directly to the Queen instead of the government, issue medals in her image and rely on the political cover the relationship provided, especially during the terrible wars in India during the 1840s. Presumably, he was grateful for the nod from Queen V during his appointment, as she said in her diary on the 9th of October 1841, quote, received a letter from Sir Robert Peel saying he had made the proposal to Lord Ellenborough of becoming Governor-General for India, who, after some little dinner, on learning that I thought him well qualified for the post, had accepted, end quote. I think being able to settle the position of an imperial governor-general is a good demonstration of how much power Victoria really had, even if it wasn't formally defined. As a side note, I will sometimes probably use the term oriental in this podcast quite a bit going forward. That's not laziness or racism. It was a commonly used phrase in Victorian times, and orientalism was a powerful cultural force. For those of you interested, it was originally a term for anything the European world regarded as the East. Whilst the Victorians did sometimes use the term Oriental as a pejorative, it was more typically an unremarkable description of a region and people from it. Incidentally, 
The opposite term for oriental is occidental, meaning from the west. Both terms originate in Latin as oriens, the part of the sky where the sun rises, and occidens, the part of the sky where the sun sets. What the Indian link shows is that the crown was much more than a figurehead, as it is in modern Britain. Victoria had immense political power, especially with appointments, and so she needed someone to support her. Albert was well aware that sometimes it was useful to support particular policies, but keep the crown away from others. As historian Miles Taylor notes, quote, The events of 1842 created an important precedent in Queen Victoria's relationship with India, establishing her personal authority independent of the East India Company. At a time when cautious prime ministers such as William Lamb, the Viscount Melbourne and Peel, and her advisers such as Prince Leopold and Baron Stockmar were reminding her of the limits to her royal prerogative at home, Tories such as Ellenborough and Wellington were extending the remit of her sovereignty in India. In other words, in India in the 1840s, Victoria was living up to the reputation of a warrior queen, to use Walter Arnstein's useful phrase. Quote. Victoria's powers at home might be being reshaped into a more limited constitutional role, but her connections to Albert, the Duke of Wellington and Ellenborough, as well as Victoria's generals like Sir Charles Napier, meant she was gaining more imperial powers overseas. She began more direct diplomacy with Indian sovereigns, for instance, as well as the Maharaja of Nepal and the Queen of Ode. All of this whilst either pregnant or being a new mother, with the war in China raging, and of course those famous little wars in far-fung places often conducted by strangely dressed British people speaking foreign languages and putting together ramshackle forces by sheer force of personality. You can see why having Albert on the sidelines with the blotting paper was a complete waste of time. That's not to say people outside the empire would have been thrilled at Britain's new constitutional arrangements, but few governments consider the rights of nations thousands of miles away when they redo their system of government. As Professor Anthony King emphasised to me in his lectures, there is a difference between good government and good governance. You can have one or the other, but the country won't work unless it has both. Albert knew the country had people who could provide good government, but without systemic reform, they would never have the processes created good governance and therefore would be doomed to failure, always kicking against a system they couldn't use to do what they knew was needed. As an aside, Professor King would have reminded us that those were vitally important for free democratic government, but are perfectly possible under other systems. The pregnancy itself was a huge matter of concern though. Even the rich could suffer during pregnancy not just childbirth. Quite apart from miscarriages, Victoria noted in her diary on the 12th of October 1840 that a friend of hers named Maria, quote, has had a premature confinement causing the death of the poor little child, a girl, 
she had had two falls, which were likely the reason of this unexpected misfortune. She is, however, thank God, going on well. End quote. You can imagine how empire builders, constitutionalists, diplomats, politicians, and many more were biting their nails with anxiety over Victoria's first pregnancy. Things progressed well enough for Victoria to go into confinement. This was the long and traditional process of secluding the woman in the third trimester of pregnancy. It didn't help much, as it prevented sensible exercise and was psychologically very tough on the mother. But it did reduce the risk of accidents, many of which were far more common in the pre-modern world. Few modern women have to worry about being kicked by a horse, crushed in a mill, immolated by getting too close to a fire in a flammable dress, or choking on smoke, or a miscarriage caused by pulling heavy minecarts close to birth. At least the confinement was an opportunity to ditch the corsets. At this point, Albert was moved to the role of effectively being uncrowned king. He was given the keys to the royal dispatch boxes, which contained the sensitive government papers and diplomatic letters that are delivered to the monarch daily. It was pretty crucial, since apart from the many domestic crises that were raging in the UK, the country was also trying to deal with discontent in India, the First Anglo-Afghan War, the First Opium War, and the Second Egyptian-Ottoman War. An involved and capable monarch was desperately needed. One fateful day, Albert noticed that some of the dispatch boxes were missing. Baroness Lazen had intercepted them to keep them from Albert. If there had been any doubt in his mind before, it was gone now. She was a liability both to his marriage and the good governance of the country. Her inevitable slide to the exit began. Victoria was extremely lucky. Her first labour was, by 19th century standards, nearly flawless. She wrote, quote, I am taking up my journal again, which was interrupted by my confinement, and am writing as well as I can, from memory and short notes, just before the early hours of the morning of the 21st. I felt uncomfortable, and with difficulty aroused Albert from his sleep, who, after a while, got Clark sent for. He came at half past two, Albert bringing him into the bedroom. Clark said he would go to Lecoq, tried to sleep again, but by four I had got very bad, and both the doctors arrived. My beloved Albert was so dear and kind. Lecoq said the baby was on the way and everything was all right. We both expressed joy that the event was at hand, and I did not feel at all nervous. After a good many hours suffering, a little child was born at two in the afternoon. But, alas, a girl, not a boy, as we had both so hoped and wished for. We were, I am afraid, sadly disappointed, but yet our hearts were full of gratitude, for God brought me safely through the ordeal, and, having such a strong, healthy child, dearest Albert hardly left me at all, and was the greatest support and comfort. When we went to see ministers, and the baby was taken by Mrs. Pegley, the monthly nurse for the baby, into the room in which they were assembled, I saw good Lazen for a moment, 
Dear Mamma also came and was much relieved and delighted. Albert had a late hurried luncheon and went to the council at four. I felt quite well and without a pain of any kind, had some food and then a good long sleep. I woke on the 22nd, having slept admirably and felt as well as if nothing had happened, had an excellent appetite. Mamma came to me for a little while and I also saw Lazen and Stockbar for a while. The dear little baby was brought in to me several times, and she was seen by numbers of people, Elwood showing her. The next days passed quietly and comfortably in the same way, and gradually I was allowed to do a little more. I have got a wet nurse for the baby, a Mrs. Ratsey, a fine young woman, wife of a sailmaker at Cowes on the Isle of Wight. Elbert read me letters from Uncle Leopold and Louise, delighted at my safe confinement. On the 27th, I was rolled into my dressing room. There's such a pleasant change. Miss Lily, my monthly nurse, whom I like so much, is indefatigable and has looked splendidly after me. Mamma has been coming daily. Occasionally, my nights have been rather less good, but on the whole, all is going extremely well, and I am recovering fast. I am always settled for the night by half past ten. Albert has been reading to me a dispatch about the taking of St. Jean d'Arc, which is a great thing. On the 30th, was rolled into my large sitting room. A great pleasure. And the baby was moved up into her new nursery, having been till then in my large dressing room. End quote. As always, when talking about royalty or the super rich, Victoria was spared some of the hardest parts of being a new mother. She had no worries about bills, paying the rent, or when to go back to work. She had hundreds of cooks and servants. All her food was prepared and delivered. Her castle was cleaned for her. Maids and a wet nurse were there to do the physical labour. No one woke her up in the middle of the night for feeding. Her body might be battered from childbirth, and her emotions were probably a hormonal roller coaster, but from a practical point of view, She wanted for nothing and had to do nothing. As she said in the next entry, After a good night, went at half past twelve into the sitting room. The baby pays me regular visits twice a day. We have settled that our little girl shall have the following names. Victoria, Adelaide, Mary, Louise. As we will see over the course of the podcast, Victoria was not a natural mother and having the newborn baby wheeled in twice a day, combined with the disappointment over the firstborn being a girl, sort of sets the tone. This was sad, but Victoria was a queen and empress. She'd had an awful childhood too. Royal families are often deeply weird, and there were lots of occasions where Victoria was a kind and loving mother who tried really hard. The arrival of the little princess was crucial since it meant Victoria had done one of the key duties of a royal woman, get pregnant and survive childbirth. It was commonly assumed that having one baby meant the risk of dying next time was reduced. The princess herself was the princess royal Victoria Adelaide Mary Louisa. As always, to the frustration of historians and podcasters, Europe would be littered with aristocrats and princesses 
formed various combinations of Victoria and Louisa, adding to the already confusing Mountain of Marys. The title Princess Royal sometimes went to the eldest daughter of the sovereign, and Albert at least would find a great deal in common with his brilliant daughter. For those reading ahead, the Princess Royal would pay a pivotal role in modern German history, almost succeeded in bringing Albert's vision of a liberal democratic Germany into being before fate and the militaristic Bismarck crushed such hopes. I can't emphasise enough how important this would have been for modern European history, which essentially became the history of Germany and its inevitable ascendancy to supreme power in Europe today. The pregnancy and birth had other implications. Obviously, for Victoria herself, there was the transition from being a young girl to queen to newlywed to young mother in only four years. She now had to cope with the knowledge that she would always be a wife and her life was in some ways even less her own. Fairly or unfairly, her body was now two things, the personal and the public body of the queen. Okay, we are going to stop there for today. We are in December and have lots of festive things to do, I'm sure. I will release the Christmas special as always, and so I want to devote plenty of time to that now. I will, though, try and finish off part two of the patrons special. With a heavy heart, I had to turn down a fairly hefty advertising endorsement for the show to keep my promise of it being ad-free and independent, so the support of patrons is really appreciated. There will be no episode on the 1st of January, so I'm hoping to bring out a mini-sode at some point in January. Then our next main show will be on the 1st of February, or somewhere between the 1st and the 5th, as I said earlier. Since it is the month of romance, and we've just done pregnancy, I thought we might have a detailed episode on Victorian sex. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now. <laughs>